Psalms chapter 36 tonight, and uh, I want to preach to you. I, I hope I can convey, I hope the Holy Ghost will help me to relate to you the truth that I believe is, is given to us in this psalm. And uh, I've jotted down a little title for the message. You know, sometimes titles are, are inconsequential, and then sometimes if you give a, a bad one, they're of much consequence. But as I read through the 36th Psalm, there is this thought that came to my mind. The psalmist is talking about what he sees in the world and how what he sees translates to what he feels. And he's looking at the wickedness of man. And it occurs to him that though right now on the earth it would seem as though wickedness goes unpunished, that there is a place where all things are measured and weighed in true and righteous balances. And the thing that God shows the psalmist, shows David, is that it's there where it really matters. We might even say it this way, it's there where it really matters, but it's also there where it really matters. What I mean is this, that there is a place of supreme and sublime importance in which God's justice and judgment is uh, reckoned equitably, uh, and it right there, I mean, that's where it really, really matters. Let's read these 12 verses together, and then I, I'm going to pray the Holy Ghost to help me to preach this as he would see fit. The psalmist says, The transgression of the wicked saith within my heart that there is no fear of God before his eyes. For he flattereth himself in his own eyes until his iniquity be found to be hateful. The words of his mouth are iniquity and deceit. He hath left off to be wise and to do good. He deviseth mischief upon his bed. He setteth himself in a way that is not good. He abhorreth not evil. Thy mercy, O Lord, is in the heavens, and thy faithfulness reacheth unto the clouds. Thy righteousness is like the great mountains. Thy judgments are a great deep. O Lord, Thou preservest man and beast. How excellent is Thy loving kindness, O God! Therefore the children of men put their trust under the shadow of Thy wings. They shall be abundantly satisfied with the fatness of Thy house, and Thou shalt make them drink of the river of Thy pleasures. For with Thee is the fountain of life. In Thy light shall we see light. O continue thy loving kindness unto them that know thee, and thy righteousness to the upright in heart. Let not the foot of pride come against me, and let not the hand of the wicked remove me. There are the workers of iniquity fallen. They are cast down and shall not be able to rise. Father, we thank you for this time and for your precious word. Now bless it and apply it to our lives through the unction, power, and wooing of the Holy Spirit this evening. I pray that my words would not be my own, but yours. Lord, I pray that as uh, the folks here hear this message, they'd not hear my message, but your message. Lord, that in all things you might receive glory that is due to your precious name. We do ask all these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. As you read this psalm, it begins, it opens with the psalmist's concern. He describes a pretty disheartening picture in front of him, and he describes how the wickedness of men has affected him. Now, let me tell you something. We live in a wicked day. When you look around at society, it just seems like wickedness is running rampant. 
And as you watch that, I'm gonna, I, I'll just go ahead and tell you, it can d- discourage you, it can disconcert you, it can distract you from what God is calling you to do. Now, I'm not saying that we're to stick our heads in the sand. I'm not saying that we are not to be educated on what's going on in world matters. But I am saying this, that there is a perspective, there is a prism through which we must view things, and that is a biblical worldview we must see these things the way God sees these things. When David opens up this psalm, uh, I'll go ahead and tell you, it's not, he's not rising to lofty heights with what he's talking about. In fact, he's talking about what he's feeling and what's going on in his own heart. I want you to notice, first off, the proclamation of man's wickedness that is troubling him. He says, the transgression of the wicked. Now, what does that mean? Transgression deals with the idea of a trespass. Now, when we, you know, there's several ways that sin is described in the Bible. And I don't believe God uses any words lightly or by happenstance or accident. And as David describes the wickedness of society, He describes it as being an offense, a trespass, a crime against a holy God. Now, you know, when you look at the way that society operates, you know, there's everybody's rights are considered. Right. I mean, everybody's we've got to consider everybody's rights, everybody's feelings, everybody's considerations. But there seems to be one person of whom society has no consideration whatsoever. And that is the God of heaven. You know, when decisions are made, uh, there's this big deal right now with this whole, uh, you know, law being passed in North Carolina and everybody's just fit to be tied. You know, the NBA is going to leave and the NFL and all that. I'd say let them go. Amen. But, you know, everybody's all tore up over it. And this, but I've not heard a single person in the midst of these legal proceedings say, well, you know, who really ought to have a say is God and his word. You know, that's what really matters. God has an opinion on things. And David, when he describes this, he describes it as being activity and iniquity that offends God. You know, I can't help but wonder sometimes what God must think when he looks at our society. In some ways, we don't have to wonder. God has given plenty of commentary on his opinion of sin and, 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 and iniquity. But, you know, I mean, I wonder what God would say about, about the United States of America in this day that we live in. You know, we, we lament all these tragedies all the time, you know. And, and I don't want to be callous. I don't want to be unkind. I think when lives are, are taken, I think that's a horrible and an atrocious thing. But let me say this, that I believe that as a country, as a nation, Until we stop the unmitigated slaughter of unborn children, we don't have any right to cry any tears over any other people group. Now, don't ask me to weep over Syrian refugees while unborn children are being slaughtered. Don't ask me to weep over the war on poverty while unborn children are being slaughtered. Now, I'm not saying those things are not important. I'm not saying there is not a place for that discussion. I'm just merely saying the place for that discussion is way down the list from the place where we start talking about why we're killing unborn children and the fact that we need to stop. Until that's addressed, I don't see how God's hand of blessing could rest Upon our country. And you know, there's been a marked decline since the 1970s in the power and prosperity and influence of America on the world scene. I don't think that's by accident. I believe we offended and angered God as a country when we went down the path of murdering unborn children. I just don't see how God couldn't be upset by that. 
David describes it as a transgression against God, a trespass. And he says this, the transgression of the wicked saith within my heart. He says, this is what I know to be true. This is what troubles me, that there is no fear of God before his eyes. Now, we might debate who the his in this verse would be. Certainly, David could be saying that before God's eyes, there is no fear of him. But I don't think that's what David's saying. I think what he's saying is this. Despite all of the religion that society may claim to have, despite all of the morality that they may uphold, despite all of the social compassion that they may promote as being their driving concern and force, the fact that they continue to transgress against God tells me they do not fear him. Certainly that could be said of our nation, wouldn't you think? That there's no fear of God in any of their eyes. He's the last person considered in these matters. But you have to understand that there is a context to what David is saying. As David says this, he has no doubt uh, in the forefront of his mind, time and again, verses where God is confirmed in David's own heart and confirmed through the mouths of prophets and through the mouths of priests that uh, God will exact and expect and extract fear for him from the nations. You see, I think the reason David was troubled by this is because he says nobody's fearing God anymore and there doesn't seem to be any consequences of it. Boy, that's pretty relevant to our day, isn't it? Because the only thing more troubling than the fact that people don't fear God is the fact that it seems like there's no consequences to it. I mean, I'll just be honest with you. It does feel that way. You can, you can say, well, no, that's not true. And certainly God is going to show David some things before this psalm is done. But if you were to be a realist and if you were to be observational, it certainly would seem that way, doesn't it? When you look around, it looks like wickedness is prevailing. It looks like the mystery of iniquity is conquering and is succeeding in this world. It seems as though for every step that we might take forward, we just spiral about 20 steps backwards. Isn't it ridiculous? Listen, isn't it, I mean, it is disgusting that it is a, a, a discussion on the public platform and arena of whether or not people need to use the bathroom of the gender they were born with. Man, that's troubling. That's troubling. That's enough to keep a, a righteous man up at night when he ponders it and considers it. The psalmist denotes the proclamation of man's wickedness. He denotes the pride of man's wickedness. He says, for he flattereth himself in his own eyes until his iniquity be found to be hateful. In other words, man thinks so much of himself that he doesn't think at all of anyone else. That's what we're seeing in society. And I don't mean to harp on this whole, you know, bill over in North Carolina. That's, it's been on the news and, and it serves as an anecdotal example, but there are certainly a thousand other, uh, anecdotal examples. But, but the first thing that happens anytime something like this is somebody jumps up and says, hey, my rights have been trampled on. You know, I, I think to myself that, you know, you, I don't know if you watched any of the news, but here, here stands a woman. She is a lesbian by her own admission. Uh, and, and she's a lawyer, and she is bringing this case with the help of the ACLU, who don't have a, a lick of business in North Carolina anyway. And behind her is uh, two what they would call transgender people. I would call them reprobates. And they can say they are transgender, but in the eyes of God, God knows how He created them, and God knows who and what they are. It's interesting to me that they, they put at the forefront 
uh, two individuals who, in their words, were born female and uh, now claim to be male. I'd suggest to you that what is so upsetting to people is not the notion of people that were born female being in public restrooms of the opposite gender, but probably individuals that were born male being in the, the restrooms of uh, their opposite gender. And these, these three individuals stand up. They're the poster children, so to speak, of this movement. And all they can say is, me, me, me. I wonder if those three individuals will look into the broken tears of parents whose children have been abused as a result of their perverseness when the day comes. I wonder if they'll go and sit beside uh, these broken people that have been abused and tortured and perverted by individuals whose souls are as black as the charred walls of hell when that day comes. They'll not be there on that day. You see, they think so much of themselves, it's about me, it's about me, it's about me, that their iniquity is found to be hateful. Certainly that's the case. Society, the only thing that uh, cannot be tolerated is intolerance. <laughs> and it's funny, I mean, everybody's tolerant till intolerance shows up, and then intolerance shows up that makes the first intolerance look like tolerance. The second that you rear an opinion that is contrary to the status quo, then all of a sudden the time for understanding and talking and discussing and being tolerant and compassion is out the window, and you must be chased with pitchforks and torches, and you must be strung up, you must be crucified. That's the society we live in. Why? Because mankind is so territorial over his own interests that he'll kill if those interests are infringed. He denotes the pride of man's wickedness. Verse 3, he denotes the perverseness of man's wickedness. He says, the words of his mouth are iniquity and deceit. He doesn't know what to do except lie. That's what we see in society today, is it not? Lying has become the most common means of communication in this society. You know, even when these individuals stand up, and they claim that they feel like they have been uh, prejudiced against, and they feel that they have been treated poorly, they know good and well they don't really feel that way. They just merely see it as an opportunity uh, to grab for power, an opportunity to exercise their will. And you can see it all the time. I mean, politics is probably the most common arena, but you can see it in any way of life. I mean, there's always just this mock compassion, just these put on tears, this empty sympathy that is pervasive in society. And it's gotten to the... Everything has an ulterior mode. Don't don't feel bad. I'm going to get to good stuff here in a minute, but... But I'm just, let me just complain with the psalmist for a minute. Can I do that? Everything's got an angle. Everything's got a bend to it. And that's society today. I think sometimes they don't even know whether, tell, whether they're telling the truth or not. And to lie is seen just as easily as to breathe. And he says this, He hath left off to be wise and to do good. He says, I look at the wicked man, and he doesn't even try to do the right thing anymore. You know, we live in a society where folks would rather steal than work. <clears throat> and they'd rather lie than have to live with consequences. They'd rather allow someone else to pull their weight than for them to have to stand on their own two legs. And there's just no attempt anymore. It seems as though nowadays we just feel good if we can stem the tide as opposed to trying to make our country more righteous and more godly, and more biblical. 
David said, that's what it all looks like to me. Man has just become perverse. He doesn't even attempt to do the right thing. And then notice what that has led to. Notice the pollution of man's wickedness. He deviseth mischief upon his bed. Now, what, what is David saying? And why did he say it that way? Does that mean that the only place that he decides to, to uh, you know, that he hatches these schemes and these plans is on his bed? No, what he's saying is this, that to him, to, to hatch schemes, to plan, to, to devise mischief, uh, that's what he does. Even when he's laying in bed at night, he can't go to bed for the want to get up and do something evil the next day. It has polluted even that most basic and fundamental element of human rest, which is sleep. He can't even sleep at night for wanting to do wrong. And he says this, He setteth himself in a way that is not good. He abhorreth not evil. It is shocking to me. Shocking. And I I think you'll agree with this. The degree to which iniquity and evil is tolerated in society. You know, somebody can go just the other day in Pakistan, Punjab, Pakistan. Uh, a, a suicide bomber went, blew himself up, killed about 70 is about the death toll now. Mostly women and children. It was at a public park. Uh, just, you know, about a week or so ago, the attacks in, in Belgium. And then a few months ago, the attacks in France. And the first thing that happens, the first thing that happens when these tragedies take place is there'll be somebody that'll that'll come out and say, well, it's the fault of gun manufacturers. And then there will be somebody that'll step out and say, well, I don't know whose fault it is, but it sure isn't Muslims fault. I was seeing an article just the other day, and I don't know which what it was in. It's all rubbish. It's all garbage. You know, all these news places, Washington Post, Huffington Post, New York Times, Boston Globe, Chicago Tribune. I mean, go go down. It's all rubbish. It's all trash. It's all biased propaganda. And I was seeing an article the other day that a young Muslim man wrote. He said it was like ten reasons why Muslims should not apologize. And as you go down through the list, he's basically giving all the reasons why he as an American Muslim should not be expected to apologize for the atrocities that have taken place. Now stop and think about how twisted a mind that young man must have had to venture to write such an article. People are burying their children. The blood is not even dried on the streets. And to have enough nerve to come out and say, let me give you some good reasons Muslims shouldn't have to apologize for this. How troubling society is. They don't abhor evil. They see that happen and it doesn't bother them. They just see it as an opportunity to go for a power grab to defend their interests and their rights. How discouraging it must have been to David, just as it is to us. You know, I said at the beginning of this message, if you focus on that, it'll drown you. It'll discourage you. You won't want to lift your head up off the pillow in the morning. And that's how David is feeling. He he denotes his concern. He says, I look around at society and, and nothing. It's not just that society's not getting better. Nothing is getting better. It seems to spiral downwards moment by moment. Then he pauses and we see the psalmist's considerations. Look what he says in verse number five. Now, he spent the first four verses complaining. That's what he's doing. He's saying everything's wicked. Nobody fears God. Everybody hates the things of God. Nobody tries to do right anymore. Then he pauses and he wants to be a little spiritual. So he says this. He says, Thy mercy, O Lord, is in the heavens, and thy faithfulness reacheth unto the clouds. He denotes the existence of God's mercy. Now, it would seem when you read that 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 is a very pleasant 
verse. But I think if you read between what David is saying here, he is willing to admit that God is merciful. He cannot deny that. I don't think there's a person in this room that would venture to say that our God is not a merciful God. He is a merciful God. Of course He's a merciful God. And yet David qualifies what he's saying by saying this. Of course God is merciful, but His mercy is in the heavens. Of course God is faithful. And he says His faithfulness reacheth unto the clouds. Isn't that interesting? David understands that God is in heaven. He said when his own little child died, he said that, that I, I, you know, he'll not come to me, but I'll go to him. And he speaks upward concerning heaven. He speaks about the, the directional location of the proximity of heaven as being upward, not being a, 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 a symbolic or allegorical thing within the heart, not dwelling somewhere on the earth or in the, but he denotes the notion of the idea of, of heaven as where God resides as being an upward thing that God dwells in the heavens. When you read that and you think of His faithfulness touching the clouds, you think of that as being the far-reaching extent to which God's faithfulness touches. But here is a man sitting underneath the clouds. And he says God's faithfulness emanating from the throne of God reacheth unto the clouds. It's almost as though David is saying, Yeah, I know God's good in heaven. But as I look around at society, I don't see the goodness of God. He says, of course God is good. I'm not denying that. Of course God is merciful, but His mercy is in the heavens. Of course He's faithful, but His faithfulness just reaches under the clouds. It don't reach down here where I'm at. I acknowledge that God is merciful, but I don't see His mercy around me. But then, you know, David has to ponder on things for a minute. He denotes the existence of God's mercy. But then he says a word about the expanse of God's holiness. Look what he says in verse number 6. Now, he's not talking about the mercy of God or the faithfulness, but he says thy righteousness. That is a word that is, uh, is unequivocally associated with the holiness of God. His willingness and his ability to do right. When we speak of righteousness, you know what we're speaking of? The rightness of the matter. That God will do right. Abraham said it this way. The judge of the all, all the earth will do right. And David ponders that for a moment. And he says this. Thy righteousness is like the great mountains. Thy righteousness is like the great mountains. When we think of the mountains, I would say that we probably think of a few things. One, we think of the vastness of mountains. One cannot help but feel when they stand at the very bottom of the mountains with how large you cannot help but feel dwarfed by that mountain as you stand in the shadow of it. David says, when I think about the righteousness of God, when I think of His holiness, when I think of how pure that He is, it's like a mountain overshadowing who I am. But when we think of a mountain, we also think of something that is invariably attached and rooted in the ground that we walk on. You don't ever see a mountain with its roots up in the air. <laughs> a mountain's roots are always in the earth. And David acknowledges that this world has been formed and its basis is of the righteousness of God. That when God spoke and created this world, that the very fact that, that creation exists around us is a testimony to His holiness and His immutability, His rightness about things. And he must confess, you know, God's righteousness is present in this world. 
Obviously, we could look around. It may not feel like it sometimes, but I think most of us have folks we could look at. And they're, they're just a bastion of hope and an encouragement to us. When I think about how wicked this world is, it does me good sometimes to think about people and places and situations in which the righteousness of God is manifest. And David must acknowledge that God's righteousness touches this earth. And then he says this, Thy judgments are a great deep. What's he saying when he says a great deep? He is speaking of a deep pool of water. This denotes a few things to us. One, it would denote this, the idea of its intrinsic existence down to the core of the earth. You know, when he speaks of great deep, he's not talking about a pond, and he's not talking about a fountain, and he's not talking about a spring, but he's talking of those unsearchable areas of the ocean beyond what man can comprehend. David says, you know, that's how God's judgments are. You ever go out, I don't know if you ever have, you know, you, you go to the beach and you can walk out, you know, a mile or two from the, from, from the, the shore and you're, you're still kind of, in a lot of places, you're still in a place where you can, you can even stand, especially if you go down to the Gulf or the Caribbean or something. But you get out into the very depths of the ocean, out into the deep places, and you can stare and look into it as long as you want, but you'll never see the very bottom of the ocean floor. It's beyond what you can perceive. You know it's there. How do you know it's there? Because the water's there. <laughs> if it was just a big hole, the water would drain out. There would be nothing there. You know that it's there by the existence of the surface water. But you also acknowledge that you can never see to the depths of what it truly is. He understands this about the judgment of God. That the judgment of God is upon this earth, but it is an unsearchable, unfathomable thing. In other words, uh, God is doing things that we'll never see the end of in this life. But we know that it's there because we can see the beginning of them in this life. Let me say that, uh, you know, if, if I want to understand and search out all of the judgments of God, I know I will never comprehend them. But I can see enough surface water to see that God does judge things on this earth. I may not always be able to see to the bottom of the floor. But I can reach out of the boat and scoop up enough of a handful to see that God deals in the affairs of men and He judges the matters of this earth. There's no question about that. You can see it oftentimes in the lives of believers when they get out of the will of God. One thing that you will always see in the life of a believer when they get out of the will of God is God's chastisement. Sometimes it evidences itself in tragedy. Sometimes it evidences itself in misery. Sometimes it evidences itself in, 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 uh, in, what's the word I am looking for? In trouble, in fear, in being confounded, in being troubled by their circumstances. But you will always see God's chastisement in the life of a believer when they get out of the will of God. I say you'll see, you may not always see the immediate, but God will always deal with His own children. You can see it in churches. If you're around churches long enough, you'll see that there's times when, when matters come up, problems come up, issues come up, and the hand of God moves in and judges that matter. Uh, there's been times in my personal life when I've seen I've been being troubled by someone and God's hand moved in and moved that person out of my life. Or there's been times when I've had trouble betwixt me and someone else uh, that is a, a brother or sister in Christ and God's hand has moved in and changed things and arranged things in such a way that reconciliation could be there and peace could be there. I've seen 
seen people set themselves as an enemy against God and against His church and seen God miraculously take those people out of this world. I may not be able to always see the end of God's judgment, but I can always tell there's water on the surface. And because of these two thoughts, he must declare this, O Lord, Thou preservest man and beast. He says, I acknowledge that your mercy is in heaven. But then he moves a step further and he says, but I must also acknowledge that you're working and dealing in this present world. He denotes the existence of God's mercy and the expanse of God's holiness. But then he says a word about it in verse seven. He says this, how excellent is thy loving kindness, O God. Therefore, the children of men put their trust under the shadow of of thy wings. He denotes the extent of God's goodness. You see, David is pondering all these things. He begins with sort of just a, a, a feigned admission of God's mercy, just sort of a, a, a polite uh, acknowledgement that God is good. But then when he really ponders on it, he must acknowledge that God does deal in the affairs of men. And then once he acknowledges that, it leads him to the place of recognizing that this is the reason men can put their faith in Him. Could I just put it in a very simple word? Our God is not a distant God. And because our God is not a distant God, that means you and I can place our confidence and faith and trust in His righteousness and judgments in this world. He acknowledges that God deals in the big things, but he must also acknowledge if God deals in the big things, because nothing's big to God, amen, then he must also deal in the small things. And he describes the excellency of God's loving kindness. He says, you know, if I really stop and think about it, I have to admit not just that God is good in heaven, not just that God is good in this earth, but God has been good in my own life. And because of that, I have reason to put my trust under the shadow of His wings. In other words, if God cares enough to save you, then God is no doubt going to continue to keep you and walk with you and provide for you and protect you. If He is big enough that He can set up rulers and take down rulers, if He's big enough that He can, can conquer armies and He can set up dynasties and empires, then He's big enough to handle the concerns of our life. And if He loves us enough that He was willing to save us, then there's no doubt, and there can be no doubt, that He will help us and strengthen us in this walk. We notice the psalmist's concern and the psalmist's consideration. But the last few verses enter a different realm in his discussion. And we see the psalmist's confidence. He says this in verse number 9. Now, you've got to remember what he's been doing. He started off complaining, and then he started considering the reality of God. He started off looking at the wickedness of men, and then he spent a little time pondering the nature of God. And when he looked at the wickedness of man, he found no answer. But when he considered and pondered the nature of God, he found answers. And he declares this. Notice the revelation he discovers. He says, for with thee is the fountain of life. 
Now, we could maybe say that there is a practical application of this. David has uh, gained a rejuvenated and reinvigorated perspective on his life and on this world. But we could also understand that there is a theological comprehension of this, which is this, that the Holy Spirit of God is the fountain of life. He is the fountain of living waters that indwells us when we are born again. Uh, Christ told the woman at the well that if you drink of the water that I shall give you, it shall be in the well of water springing up into life everlasting. And uh, He no doubt is that fountain of living waters that Jeremiah speaks of in Jeremiah chapter 2. And so the psalmist acknowledges that the answer to his concerns are not found externally, but internally. Not in and of himself but rather inasmuch as God is speaking to his heart and moving in his life. And then he says this, in thy light. Now, what is his light? His light is the word of God. David had already said that, he, that he, you know, he'd make uh, the Lord's word a, a lamp unto his feet and a light unto his path. He already acknowledged that, that the word of God was light that could shine in the darkness of his heart and his life. And so basically he says this, Lord, you're the place I'm going to get comfort and peace from. And your word is the place where I can find comprehension to what's going on. You know what we call that? We call that a biblical worldview. David says, I understand that only from you can I get comfort and only from you can I get comprehension for this path that I'm in. You know what you'll find? You're not going to get, and I'm not, I'm not critical. I already told you I've rattled off enough news facts this morning or this evening. You can tell I, I get, I watch the news. I read articles. I'm not criticizing it, but let me tell you something. You're not going to get encouragement from the newspaper. And you're not going to get encouragement from the tabloids. You're not going to get encouragement from from the Hollywood programs. You're not going to get encouragement uh, from all of these various pundits and all these various commentators. Those things will continually beat you down and oppress and repress the encouragement that you might gain. Those things are going to bow you low. But you'll find that in the Word of God and in the Holy Ghost, you'll find the encouragement and uplifting that you need. David says, you know what I've learned? The more I thought about man, the more discouraged I got. But the more I thought about God, the more encouraged I got. He begins by merely saying that there's no fear of God before their eyes. But by the time that you get down to verse number 4, he says when they go to bed at night, they just think of wickedness and they, they abhor evil. He says that they set themselves in a way that's not a good way. You know what David is saying by that? He's saying things aren't going to get any better. So he begins by merely saying they have no fear of God. And he ends by saying things aren't going to get any better. But when he begins to think about God, he begins by saying, sure, there's a goodness to God in heaven. But he ends by saying that his loving kindness is excellent and that I can put my trust in the shadow of his wings. You notice the correlation. As he thought about man, his thoughts trended downward. But as he thought about God, his his heart soared upward. He says, I found encouragement there. We notice the revelation he discovers that if he'll just get along with God, he'll find the encouragement that he needs. But notice the request that he delivers in verses 10 and 11. He says, Oh, continue thy loving kindness unto them that know thee, and thy righteousness to the upright in heart. He begins by first saying, Lord, keep being good in my life and in the lives of those that know you. Continue to show and to shower your loving kindness to us. Continue to deal with us in, in goodness and in mercy 
and in loving kindness. And you know, this was a prayer that he could pray. And he could pray with confidence. You know why? Because Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's the Lord God that changeth not. It's not based upon us or who we are, but it is based upon Him and His person and His presence. And so when David prays this, he can pray it in confidence. I'm going to go ahead and tell you, there's been things that I've prayed, and I didn't know whether God would do it or not. There's been times I've prayed, mostly it's about temporal things. You know, I've prayed, and I've asked God for, you know, a new car, a new clothes, a new whatever it might be. And I didn't know whether God was going to do that. But there's been some things that I've prayed for in my life that I know God has a will and a desire to do. Every time you pray for a lost person, an individual by name, every time you pray for them to be saved, you can know without a shadow of a doubt that it's the will of God that they be saved. They'll make their own choices. We understand that. It's not a guarantee that if you pray for someone one time, that that means that, that God will superimpose His will on theirs and not allow them a choice in the matter. We know that's not what we're saying, but we know that we are praying within the will of God. When we pray and ask for spiritual strength, we're praying for something that's within the will of God. When we're praying and asking that the Lord would make us more thankful, we know we're praying something in the will of God, because in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. There's some things you pray for and maybe you might wonder, but then there's other things you pray for you know are within the will of God. And David, when he prays this, he knows it's within the will of God. You never have to worry whether when you pray and ask God to encourage you and strengthen you and help you, whether that's going to fall on deaf ears. God will hear that prayer. And then he says in verse 11, he says, first off, God, keep being good to me. (laughs) Isn't that an interesting change in tone from the beginning? When he begins this psalm, he says he's not focusing on himself. But when he begins this psalm, he says that that men are wicked. Everyone's wicked. Everything's bad. Things ain't going to get any better. And you know what? He's right. But now when he comes to the place of prayer in the prayer closet, he must acknowledge that God has been good to him. And he asks God to continue to be. But then he says in verse 11, let not the foot of pride come against me and let not the hand of the wicked remove me. He says, God, I want to pray and ask you to keep being good to me. But he says, I also want to pray and ask that you'd protect me from those that would do ill towards me. He acknowledges this, that the, the filthiness of the world doesn't have to affect him. As bad as this world gets, and this world's only going to get worse, it doesn't have to mean we have to get worse. I know we live in a day of moral relativism. And that's one of the most destructive concepts to any civilization. And you can go back. You know, you'll find this to be true. Americans, we're the new kids on the block. We've not been around that long. And civilizations long before America was ever thought of have already gone down the path of moral relativism. Go in and study the ancient Romans and look at their different schools of thought and philosophies. And there was a group uh, that, that had the, the idea that, you know, everything was absolute and everything did matter. But then there were groups that said nothing's absolute and nothing matters. And that's what prevailed in Rome because that's what gives men license to live ill and to live wickedly in this world. And you know, you know what undid the Roman Empire? It wasn't marching armies. It was unfettered flesh and lust. That's what destroyed the Roman Empire. And moral relativism is what led to that concept in their society. We're not the first to try that. But let me tell you something. There's a great danger as Bible believers that we allow that moral relativism to affect our lives and to give us cheap, ugly excuses to become lax in our walk with Christ. Well, nobody else is doing it. 
Well, that's not what you, that's not how you determine whether you're going to do something or not. How you determine it ought to be what, what's right and wrong according to the Word of God. Well, it's not very popular, preacher. Well, Christ wasn't either. Well, preacher, it's just not in vogue anymore. It's not common anymore. Well, maybe not, but guess what? Things are only getting worse. Do you want to get worse with them? David says, I don't want this wickedness in this world to affect my home and to affect my life. Lord, keep me from this wickedness. Lord, don't allow the wicked man to remove me. Don't allow the foot of pride to come against me. Lord, just preserve me from this wicked day. And then finally he denotes this in verse 12. We see the revelation he discovers. If I'll just get along with God, I'll get encouraged. We notice the request he delivers. God, keep being good in my life and don't allow me to go the way of the world. And then notice finally the reckoning he declares. Notice how verse 12 begins. It begins with the word there. Now, I'm going to go ahead and confess to you. When I read that, it puzzled me. Because there is no geographical location mentioned for a few verses. I started scouring, looking through. Where is there? If the psalmist says, there are the workers of iniquity fallen, where is there? Where There's not even really a time constraint noted within this. Not even a point in time that is denoted. So where is there? Well, if you go back to verse number 9, you find the last place that a geographical location is mentioned. He says, for with thee is the fountain of life, and in thy light shall we see light. David says, you know, when I really get to thinking about it, I thought that the mercy of God only existed in the heavens and the wickedness of man was running rampant down here. But as I've really got to thinking about this thing, I've noticed that God's mercy is even present down here and that the wickedness of man has already been judged up there. He says, there are the workers of iniquity fallen. They may be propped up down here. But if we could see things the way that God sees things, they've already fallen. They may look like they're winning down here, but if we could see things on the other side of the glass, we could see things in the presence of God, we'd know that we're not waiting for judgment to be passed. Judgment has already been passed. We're just merely waiting for punishment to fall. There the workers of iniquity are fallen. He says they are cast down and shall not be able to rise. He acknowledges that their judgment has been passed, it is secured, and it is absolutely terminal. There is no way for them to come back from that. I'm thankful we can be saved. I'm thankful that a a wicked man can be born again. I'm not dismissing that. I don't think the psalmist is dismissing it either. But remember, he's not necessarily talking about the individual wickedness of man, but he's talking about the collective wickedness of man, the wickedness of society. And he recognizes this. It may look like it's running rampant down here. But in the eyes and mind of a thrice holy God, it's already been dealt with. It's already been judged. And it's already been addressed. Things are going to get worse. I'm going to stand up here. You know, they, they used to, back in the early 1900s, utopianism was real popular in, uh, in, the, in the church. And that's when amillennialism really came into, came into existence. Because it, it was the idea of utopianism. Things, there is no literal uh, millennial reign of Christ. We're just going to get better and better and better and better and win everybody to Jesus. And that's going to be the millennium. And that was in vogue in the early 1900s. And they, a lot of people really bought that. I mean, they really believe things is just getting better and better. It's no wonder why. I mean, technology was just racing and, and prosperity was everywhere. And they thought, man, things is just going to get better. And then 1917 happened. And the first world war broke out. 
that sobered society up pretty quick to recognize that things aren't going to get any better. They're going to continue to spiral downward. Evil men and seducers are going to wax worse and worse. Times are more perilous today than they've ever been, but they're going to get even more perilous as time goes on. It's a discouraging thought for a believer. You know, they may, just just to mention this North Carolina thing again, you know, they may overturn that bill, they may uphold that bill, I don't know what's going to happen. But mankind's going to get more and more wicked. If you're looking for the next politician to fix things, you're going to be disappointed. If you're looking for the next legislation to straighten things out, you're going to be disappointed. Wicked men are going to keep getting worse and worse and worse. Preacher, how do I cope with that? How do I keep from getting discouraged? Well, you have to have the biblical worldview. You have to see things the way God sees them. That God is dealing in your life and encouraging you and helping you and working within your life. But in the broad scheme and scope of things, the God of heaven has already judged these matters. And He'll deal with them according to His will and according to His time. 